everyone, and welcome back to another episode of NYY Takes. And I have a question to ask. Yankees fans, are we happy today? Matt, why don't you kick us off? Since we actually have Yankees fans on the panel with us, I'm not just asking an imaginary person or myself for once. Of course we're happy. How can you not be happy as a Yankee fan after watching those proceedings last night in Los Angeles? As I was watching the game, I was thinking to myself, this telecast was literally engineered to produce maximum happiness from Yankees fans. Just the entire thing was just an ode to the amazingness that is the 2022 Yankees. Starting with the fact that there were so many Yankee players there, Giancarlo Stanton hits a two-run home run, gets crowned MVP of the game. There's a whole segment devoted to Nestor Cortez pitching to Jose Trevino, and the two of them just chatting it up, having a great time. Nestor throws a clean inning. Trevino comes back the next inning, knocks a base hit up the line. Just, it was incredible. I was so happy the entire time. My Sox fan roommate was so annoyed with how happy I was the entire time. It was great. It was awesome. and really felt like a microcosm, like an encapsulation of everything that has gone so right for the Yankees this season and why they're at the top of the sport at the moment, why they had one of the best first halves in the expansion era. It was all just right there last night. It was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Matthew. Like that was, that was just tremendous. Like I, the dialogue, uh, Garrett Cole being mic'd up the story about how he's got three home runs in his career (laughs) and how he did not miss hitting at all. Like I actually did Google Garrett Cole hitting home runs and he runs around the bases like he had two left feet. So <laughs> Garrett Cole not batting anymore is, is fantastic. Um, Judge and Stanton mic'd up at the same time was good stuff. So, And then obviously going into the break, going into the All-Star game, curb stomping the Red Sox. 14-1, to 13-2. to It's I'm a happy Yankees fan. How about you guys? I'd say pretty happy, especially compared to this time last year. I actually did not watch a second of the home run derby, nor the all-star game. Wow. Just because I don't watch all-star games. I think they're a money grab. I don't, uh, I was not go. expecting, I was not expecting the high quality broadcast that I saw clips up on Twitter last night. Um, so maybe I'll tune in next year. What I will say though, is that the baseball set they used were a hundred percent juiced because you're not hitting a 2022 baseball that far in Dodger stadium. However, I did make really good use of my time because instead of watching the all-star game, I actually watched episode one of the captain, the Derek Jeter documentary by Randy Wilkins. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, I read a lot of books about Jeter and the nineties Yankees and everything associated with that in the past. So in terms of substance, I don't think I learned a ton, but it was nonetheless a great film. Highly recommend it. And we did get a couple of funny anecdotes from the likes of Andy Pettit and Buck Walter. I thought Buck Walter was incredible. And I kind of wanted him to be the Yankees manager in the 90s instead of Tory, but not complaining either way. But yeah, happy nonetheless. And hopefully it will stay that way for the rest of the season. Yeah. I mean, when I would ask this question when I was doing this podcast all by myself last season... It really would have been a lot better to have other people with me because I don't th- I think it just would have been the answer would have been no every single day. But today, of course, 
every single day the answer would be yes. But I too, I, I did, unlike you, to watch both all three of the All-Star Game, the Home Run Derby, and the Jeter Doc. On the Jeter Doc, I think I agree with you. It's like I watched the Derek Jeter Yankeeography. I've I've probably watched that in my life in somewhere in the double digits at this point. Like when I was younger and was a Derek Jeter stan, it was kind of something I would throw on all the time. So it did feel like you mentioned there was a lot of stuff that I already knew, like the moment where like the classic his dad would never let him win at anything, even checkers. Like that's straight out of that Yankeeography episode. So something so something I had I had known already. But yeah, the buck, the it, it's it's so funny slash sad because so much of that first episode was like that nineteen ninety five that nineteen ninety five season, which is a season that kind of gets forgotten. I'm going to be honest. I sometimes forget that the Yankees were up two oh in that. Well you weren't born in nineteen ninety five, which might explain it. That that is that is true, but you know I like to think of myself as somewhat of a Yankee historian. So it was like I don't know, kind of a, a gut punch because it's if the Yankees win that series, obviously 1996 through 2004 through present day, you know, ended up being amazing. But the only thing I could think of was how different things would have been had they won that series. Would Buck Walter have been around? Would Don Mattingly maybe have gotten his ring? And I was just sad because it's like, oh, you know they win the World Series in 1996. But you also know that Buck Showalter is not the manager of that team. And you know that Don Mattingly is not on that team. So it was kind of like this bittersweet, like, oh, it's really cool to see that this Yankees team with Jeter watching on the bench and being a part of the playoffs was really competitive and feisty. And they acquired David Cohn. And he was talking about how he always wanted to be a Yankee. Very good propaganda in the show, you can already tell. But it was a little sad being like, what could have been with Buck and Mattingly and those two guys? And you kind of understand how much of a role they actually played in building that foundation for, you know, what the Yankees are today, which is a team that kind of rides on the coattails of that dynasty from 96 to 2001. Um, but yeah, and I'm left wanting a lot more out of the series. Like once the episode ended, I wanted to watch the next one. When the last dance came out, I don't know if you guys watched that. Were they all released at the same time? No, no, it was week by no. week during yeah, COVID. Week week. It yeah. was week and by did, week, and they COVID. did that on purpose so that we would have something to talk about every week when there were yeah. no sports going on. Yeah, so yeah. like I was watching, I was watching it with my roommate last night after the All Star Game. So like, had in some alternate universe, every episode had been released at one time there was a non-zero chance that we would have just stayed up for seven hours straight watching every single episode so all in all i'm very excited for the rest of this series i agree yeah i i similarly i really enjoyed the first episode and i'm always reminded anytime that the that 95 team is discussed that alds is discussed that the great tragedy that was the fact that the yankees made the world series the year before mattingly debuted and the year after he retired yeah. his career was literally bookended by world series appearances and yet he only appeared in that one postseason in 95 just just tragic but you know that's that's all part of the donnie baseball story really the other thing that i um was reflecting on watching that doc was i think that easily that gary thorne call of the mattingly home run mm-hmm. in game two hang on to the roof Top, what, five calls of Yankee moments of the last 25 years? Top three? It's got to be up there. 
That yeah, really it's, it's definitely in the top two of Gary Thorne Yankees calls. I'll say that. I can name like three off the top of my head. Well, two calls outside of that that I'll always remember. It's the Boone. It's Joe. It's it's the it's the Boone walk off. Both yeah. Joe Bucks and I forget who the radio guy was doing it, but um, Joe Bucks. Forget his name. And then John Sterling's call of Gary Sanchez's double in Game Four of the 2017. ALCS. That is like one of the greatest calls that I've ever heard. So those two off the top of my head. But Les, I want to ask you because I think you were the only one on this podcast that was alive for that 1995 team. And would and would I was alive. I was alive. alive. Yeah, I I was. I was uh, two weeks old. Oh, you guys. I was. uh, I'm really. I was a baby. baby I'm. I'm I'm truly the stage for me. (laughs) I'm truly the baby here. But yeah, no less. I mean, I actually I did not know enough about that 95 team clearly. But is it what they made it out to be, or are they, you know, kind of hyping it up? Because it seems like, I mean, they were a team that was hyper-focused on winning. They kept bringing up that it was super intense. I mean, was it that fun to watch that team play baseball every it day? It was awesome. It actually was. It started in 94, the first time the Yankees broke my heart. Not just the Yankees in general, but baseball. Yeah. So Yankees are Yankees have a huge lead in the division, and that this is where it started. And then the strike happens. And I think, oh, man, this is this is awful. The Yanks are rolling. I sat through a good chunk of a decade where they were not particularly good. 95 happens. And Donnie Baseball, obviously my guy, I wrote about him for our website. And then, yes, they absolutely were. And like we talked about, I, I, was, uh, I was a freshman in high school that season. And I just remember having my heart just completely broken when Ken Griffey Jr. came around third and scored that run. And I... It was absolutely. I just thought that was a that was the first time I was gonna see them win the World Series, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately, wasn't meant to be. Cone took the blame for it. Blackjack McDowell is probably one of the biggest villains in Yankees history. So, yeah, that '95 team was just a lot of a lot of fun to watch. '94, '95 is kind of where the whole whole thing started, and they just started rolling from there. Let me ask you this though: so if I don't know if it was just because they were extremely hyper-focused on that team, but it seemed really, really intense. Like, the daily grind of having to win every single game, even more so than the years afterwards. I just felt like there was just this pressure that was probably originated in the fact that it was Mattingly's last season. Mm -hmm. But I guess asking you, since you experienced it and can actually remember it, um, was 95 any more pressure intense than the years after? Oh, absolutely, because that was kind of the stage where they wanted to turn the corner. Like in the Jeter doc, they talked about some of like the, the more toxic time periods that they had. They talked about Pascal Perez and Mel Hall and some of the shenanigans. But yeah, absolutely. They wanted to, they made moves. They brought in Paul O'Neill, I think 94, 95, like, they really did start to turn the corner that time and they wanted to turn into a winning franchise. So they made trades. stick. Michael built a tremendous team. And then obviously they were going to start giving the younger players an opportunity Start with Bernie Williams, who that was constantly referred to as Bambi when he came, came up because he had those silly glasses and he was a rookie and, you know, they, they harassed the, they harassed the shit out of him, but Donnie baseball took him under his wing and to this day, Paul O'Neill and Freddie Williams hold Don Magley in very high reverence. But yeah, it was absolutely a grind. It was absolutely pressure-packed to start to turn that corner and bring a champ- championship team to the Bronx. It absolutely was. It was fun to watch, too. 
up until Seattle. <laughs> I was just going to ask, Toe, were you referencing the, the Glaber Torres home run call as your other one of the top two Gary Thorne Yankees calls? Was that the joke you were making before? <laughs> I'll let the other panelist reaction speak for myself. Great. Yeah, I think that's all where, you know, where we all knew that was going. I, I thought it was interesting, too, in the doc that, and I don't know how much of a role, I don't know how involved Jeter actually was in the making of the doc, but right from the outset, basically, they made it a point to tell everybody that's watching that, hey, in 1990, people were standing up and cheering in Yankee Stadium when George Steinbrenner stepped down and as owner, as acting owner of the Yankees. And they clearly paint this picture that it's Gene Michael. And, and Yankees fans, you know, true Yankees fans, most Yankee fans do know that Gene Michael played a huge role in building up, you know, that roster and getting Posada, Mariano, Jeter, all of these guys. I just thought it was interesting that they would make it an effort early on in the first episode to be like, hey, this, uh, you know, George is not was not really the godfather of this entire scenario. And then they kind of walked it back later and they were like, well, we don't get great in 96 unless George is around because they get Paul O'Neill and, you know, all these other guys and, and uh, Tino obviously down the line. So I, I just thought that was interesting because it's like I feel like Jeter wouldn't be that down for like like basically, you know, tarnishing George's name to some degree. But I don't know. I just thought that was I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, I, I think was- that speaks a lot to Gene Michael's role in in the building of that dynasty and Jeter definitely does recognize that yeah Gene Michael authorized drafting him authorized basically accelerating him through the minor leagues even though he wasn't really performing um up to expectations of a number one pick and it was Gene Michael whose idea it was to have him and Posada and the other young guys on the bench during the September run into the 1995 postseason and that I think a lot of Yankees fans knew that little nugget because even as recently as 2017, 2018, the Yankees kept basically their entire 40-man roster in the dugout during the postseason. Um, And that was from Gene Michael establishing the culture of just experience what it is to play in this type of environment. And it doesn't matter if you win or lose because it's important to feel both. If you want, if you win, you want to experience that all the time. If you lose, you never want to experience that again. And I think they a emphasize that to show to non-Yankees fans that this is how the culture was built, and b kind of lay out just how important G. Michael was to Derek Jeter's development. Which again, we knew, but maybe the general audience does not. The thing about the thing about George that I think was interesting too, and the reason why they did that is. Because he's been romanticized, right? Yeah. So everybody thinks about this whole just win ethos that the Yankees have. But when I was talking before about how there was some toxicity around the Yankees at that point, there was also a lot of it coming from the owner's box. They talked about, um, you know, the, the whole Winfield scenario and, you know, where he paid some gambler 40 grand to dig up dirt on him. And there was some, like the whole Dodd Manley Seidenburn thing, like, there was a dust up over the length of Dodd Manningly's hair. Like there was just a lot of, and then throughout the eighties and early nineties, there was a revolving door of managers. So I think Yankees fans as a whole just got kind of tired with the circus 
they're happy to get a breath of fresh air, maybe have a chance at a new start. And I think that's why they were a little bit happier to, to see George go for a, a short period of time. I thought that was one of the coolest artistic elements of the film was that they managed to trace the story from Jeter as a kid rooting for Winfield, Winfield that was his favorite yeah. player, to George and Winfield feuding, to George getting kicked out of the game and Gene Michael stepping up, to Jeter getting drafted. That's a straight line. It was very cool how they integrated Jeter's commentary at every stage, you know, from his childhood, you know, idolization of Winfield to the mess with George in 1990, and then, you know, to, to stick Michael taking over and drafting Jeter. Um, and then they, you know, they, 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 there was that soundbite from, from Jeter where he said, you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what happened with, between George and, and Dave Winfield, and I don't really want to know. I'd rather, just, yeah. I'd rather just leave it as, as an unknown. I thought it was very cool the way that they stitched that story together and how really all of those things were so intimately linked. Definitely. Yeah, I do I do want to talk about the All-Star game a little bit, but just to finish up on the Jeter doc. So what do you think is the I mean, I I want a little bit more inside footage type thing. I don't want it to be like a full documentary of kind of like footage we've already seen. We kind of got like a sneak peek of it with when it opened up with his last game at Yankee Stadium and kind of all of that cool footage that they had. But in I keep I keep bringing up the last dance, but and obviously the last dance is different because MJ had a camera crew basically follow him around, and I don't think Jeter had that. But I do kind of want to see things behind the scenes that we haven't seen before because so much of Jeter's career is guarded and veiled to a certain degree. We don't know so much about the guy, although he did come out of his shell a little bit at the beginning of the episode, kind of being like you know talking about the whole Yankee way. But that's kind of what he does. But he, he has been kind of not great about talking about his connection to the Yankees since he left base or left baseball as a player um, and started working for the Marlins. But Toe, what are you what are you uh, itch, itching to say? They better have an entire episode just on his dating life. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> well, that's the thing is that Jeter probably has some level of creative control over this thing. So I don't really know if he's going to let that fly. Well, here's the thing, like. And this is not something that this is not my statement but it's something that i kind of do agree with it's that Derek jeter is a pretty boring person right yeah if Derek jeter were shortstop for the kansas city royals for example would we be having a seven-part documentary about him let's of say Derek, no but let's say Derek jeter won five rings with the kansas city royals still no oh, maybe right maybe didn't like, Jimmy not Rollins this. say that? Was it Jimmy Rollins that said that? Somebody had this exact same soundbite recently. Yeah, I and I kind of agree with that. It's because the Manny? York... Was it Manny? Maybe. It Manny. Maybe. Maybe. One, one of the haters that Derek Jeter beat regularly made that <laughs> point. Um, and, I mean, that just speaks to the power of the Yankees and specifically the power of the New York media. Joel Sherman looked like he was thrilled to be there. <laughs> Yeah, like like yeah. Joel Sherman thought that the documentary was about Joel Sherman, not Derek Jeter. <laughs> yeah, it. I mean, that that is a it's an argument. I'm not even going to call it a valid argument, but it's like that's kind of the point of the entire doc. It's like there's so much pressure coming to be the shortstop of the New York Yankees and you're playing in New York and you're playing in front of Yankees fans and you're playing dealing with New York media all the time. Not to mention he was 
struggling and crying and throwing up all through his experience through the minor leagues. So I think there is something to be said for someone that came up and, and did it the right way and the, the way that he did in New York, because it's clearly, I mean, it was pretty obviously like could be a very toxic environment and he turned it into something that was a winner and a consistent winner and, you know, a team and an organization that went around, went about their business in the most Yankee way possible. Any other final thoughts on the doc? I'm just excited for the next one. It comes out Thursday night. Yeah, the draft scene. scene. The draft scene gave me absolute goosebumps. Like when they're getting all excited about, you know, you hear mom say it's the Yankees, it's the Yankees. Like how awesome was that? Like that was just, that was incredible. You know, like him, Jeter talking about how his dream was to play shortstop for the Yankees. And that line about, you know, just because you can't accomplish my dreams doesn't mean that I can't accomplish my dreams. Yeah. Like that was just incredible. And when you guys were just talking about favorite sound bites, that led me down the whole Michael K where Derek Jeter fantasy becomes reality. Like that's my absolute favorite line ever other than hold out of the roof. But he really <laughs> did. He set out a goal to be the shortstop for the Yankees. Five teams were dumb enough not to pick him. And it worked out for us. Yeah. So Phil Nevin. I'm yeah, Phil, Phil Nevin being, being the first pick was the funniest thing in the world. That got like an audible, an audible laugh out of me. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is awesome because like there are so many kids out there that are like, I'm going to be a New York Yankee one day or I'm going to be shortstop for the Yankees one day. And Derek Jeter went out and did it. Did he have to get a little a little lucky getting drafted by them? Of course. But that's just how it goes, I guess. I mean, Derek Jeter's entire life is pretty much a, a fairy tale at this point. Definitely. So. I guess, you know, why not make a pretty awesome six-part, seven-part series on them? Seven. But yeah, next episode, tomorrow night. So make sure you're tuning in. Um, All-Star Game. So my uh, number one takeaway is that, okay, yes, the Nestor-Trevino stuff was cool, but my love for Giancarlo Stanton has just continued. Like, my Giancarlo Stanton love stock is just a straight line. Well up. And, and, uh, so I don't know if you guys follow the Twitter account MLB Exec Burner. This is a this is a Twitter account that I introduced Toe to um, a couple weeks ago. So he fired out a tweet, and you know, there's there's a whole backstory with this guy. Who knows if he actually works in the front office? He has a lot of really insightful tweets. Um, but I decided one day to turn on his tweet notifications, and it happened to be that one of his tweets last night was that the best thing to happen to Giancarlo Stanton since he came to the Yankees, was Joey Gallo coming here and being the whipping boy. And I actually really disagree with that take because I don't think it gives enough credit to Giancarlo Stanton for coming here, getting booed for a year and a half, not saying one negative thing to the media, clearly not even like batting an eye publicly and being able to turn it around. So that was that was kind of like that happening during the game on top of the fact that like his interviews were fun. He seems like a really nice dude when he has every opportunity to be like a complete a-hole. He's got tons of money and, you know, he's like a star on the New York Yankees, but he just, he is kind of like the most Yankee Yankee right now. Is that, I don't, I mean, is that crazy? I mean, you could say judge if you want, but we can get to his quotes later. But Giancarlo's kind of like, to me, the peak Yankee at the moment. Stan is way cooler than than Judge. I mean, that's just like as a person, he's just a cooler guy. I think that almost goes without saying. And yes, I completely agree. I mean, he had a really, really great first year. 
in pinstripes. He carried the team for so much of that season. And all yeah. you heard was the Yankees made a huge mistake trading for this guy. He's he's going to end up the, as the downfall of the of this iteration of the franchise. Like all you heard was people trashing him. Mm-hmm. And yet he had a fantastic season that year. And last year, at another you know another season, many periods of which he carried the team again. This year he's been great. All Star Game MVP. He's done everything that the team's asked of him. He's you know played left when he's been asked to do so. He's played right. He's DH'd. He's taken it all in stride. Yes, he's had some problems with injuries for sure, but that's really the only knock on his Yankee resume in my mind. And I, I'm, I'm with you, I think, Robert. To me, like he is the closest thing that the team has to like a spiritual leader right now, or even a, you, you could say a captain-like figure. Um, it, it's, it's, it's incredible what he's done. And yeah, in my mind, no one should have anything but good things to say about the guy. Would you rather have Giancarlo Stanton for his age 33 to 37 seasons at a $22 million luxury tax hit or Aaron Judge for ages 30 to, let's call it 37, 38 for $36.5 million luxury tax hit? I think I know what my answer is. I think I'm just trying. I'm just going to take the contract that I can get out of the way of soonest. So yeah, I'm just going to go stand because that contract just ends and I don't have to deal with it anymore. But, but like even before that, John Carlos Stanton at his current contract is a bargain, an absolute bargain when you compare it to what Judge is going to get or what Corey Seager just got or what yeah. anyone, anyone else of these recent free agents That's have fair. received. Like I mean, John Carlos changed, Stanton is MVP so caliber. And he's like, yeah, you're going to pay him $32 million in catch. But the important number to us fans is a $22 million luxury tax hit. And I don't think you can do better, frankly. Yeah. I mean, we've spoken, you know, so much about the Judd, the Judd situation and the extension. But it's like, I think at, at least where I am, it's like at, no one is going to have fun in the last four years of that contract, regardless of what team he goes to, even the last five years of that contract. Um so, yeah, to answer your question, I'm just getting out of the way as soon as possible. And then another I, I do we want we can talk about the the Soto and judge quotes if if we so please. I don't have the judge quote in front of me, but would anyone like to provide a spark note specifically toe? This is a, a question for toe or anyone else that has it up, but specifically toe. <laughs> well. Let me pull up the article so I have my context 100% correct. So Judge was doing... I think it just came to me. It was basically... So there was there was the one yesterday with Marley Rivera, which we know of, which was like this little kid. Like, yeah. is Aaron Judge really not going to be a Yankee next season? Which is like a crazy question to ask. I get Marley Rivera is doing her job. And like, that is her job to like get people to view and look at the interview and all of that and get engagement. Um and asked very difficult questions, but it was the day before where judge was kind of like, you know, it's, it's not about the money. Uh, or he was basically like, I want to do whatever it takes to be a Yankee. It's not about the money. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And it's like, you know, sometimes you can try too hard to say the right thing that you end up saying the wrong thing. And to me, that's what judge kind of did. It's like, you can't say you want to be a Yankee and 
it's not about the money and you want to do whatever you can to be a Yankee and then turn around and say, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out because the implication then there is it is about the money and it well, is about I mean, the contract. We know exactly how much money he turned down too because we know yeah. because so it came like, directly from the mouth of the guy who offered him the contract. So, I mean, again, he, he tries we'll save this for later, but yeah, I mean, he tried, he and, tries so, yeah. so hard to say the right thing. So this is less like an all-star game conversation, more of like an all-star break conversation, but it's, I don't know. It's just like, stop trying so hard to say the right thing and just like deflect the question away. Then like say something that's like kind of total BS, to be honest. I think he's tired of talking about it. And I yeah. think that it was an awkwardly phrased question that put him in a weird spot and probably just let him down a path where he's like, I'm going to, I don't even know what I'm going to say. I think he's just tired of talking about it, but that's comes with it. I'm more, I actually hate the Juan Soto line personally. Juan, yeah. Juan Soto was just, well, it was just well, stupid. Isn't what he said like, oh, they, they told me they weren't going to trade me. And now look at it now. Like they're, they're telling everyone they're trading me or something. You turned out $440 million. You're out of market, <laughs> buddy. They're yeah. going to trade you as soon as humanly possible. If you can't turn, if you turned out almost half a billion dollars. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's fair. I mean, but Juan Soto knows his worth. Did you guys see that the video of him in, in the outfield? I think he played center at one point in the All-Star game. And there's a video of Dodgers fans chanting future Dodger. And he and he was turning around and smiling and love it and loving it. Sure. I mean, God, if he goes to the Dodgers, that lineup is absolutely ridiculous. Turner, Freeman, Muncy, Soto. Other Turner. Other Turner. Will Smith, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean that 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 Mookie. I mean that that team is that team. Is oh, you forgot Mookie. Yeah. yeah, like of course we forget about Mookie Betts. Um, I mean that that team is just would be ridiculous, and that's probably like in my brain that's like the most likely place that he goes if he does get traded somewhere because the Dodgers. This is what they do. They've done it every single season. They have traded for the mid, you know, the the free agency darling. It's true. Yeah, they got Machado a couple of years ago. They got. They got sure, so yeah. This is a this is a dot this is a Dodgers type of move. Yeah, and they did Scherzer last year. I mean, yep. you know, Dodgers type of move. Um, but just so we're clear about this Juan Soto thing, if the Yankees were to go into play, you literally offer every single asset that the organization owns, including the parking lots that surround Yankee Stadium. <laughs> Seriously. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they I think it's a question. I, I just. They, they I, I, I actually, I, I'm not so convinced the Yankees have what the Nationals want to get a trade done. Um, really? At, really? To, to, the, to the degree that I think the Yankees are willing to part with, and then to... Well, that's, I, a, different, I, that's a different question, though. It has to be a mix of both, though. Like, I don't think the Yankees are willing to, like, deviate from kind of this plan they've had and go full, like, balls to the wall with it. Like, I don't see them giving up every single prospect in their farm system, plus... I mean, they want quote MLB ready players, so I I, I don't really see how I, just don't, I don't I don't think the Yankees have what it takes to actually get the deal done. That's how much I think the Dodgers are going to try to get because so the Dodgers from or, or the uh, Nationals are going to try to get so the Dodgers can give up major league ready talent in like Gavin Lux and Dustin May, and then on top of that have a ton of good prospects to give up. The Yankees don't really have like the young guy that's already playing at a high level in the big leagues. To give them to give the Nationals kind of that springboard. What about Torres? Yeah, exactly. I I don't like I I don't think he's 
He doesn't fit there. into their window. I think that's yeah, the problem. I don't think, I don't, he has I don't too much service like, time at this Lux, I think Lux, Dustin May, they're, they're more, there's more, there's more to those guys, I think. That's just my, my gut feeling on the situation. I don't know. So, I mean, I, I feel like an offer that's centered around Volpe, Dominguez, and Torres is as competitive as anything that any other team can offer. I mean, Torres is a, you know, he's a young guy, quite a few years of team control left. He's in the midst of his best season, both, in terms of the only the only number that's not as good as a previous season is the is the homers because he went off for 38 in 2019. But aside from that, quality of contact is the best it's ever been. Uh, he's he's being patient. He's not striking out a ton. He's walking more. He's shown that he can be an adequate defender at second. That to me is a that's an MLB ready obviously a player with MLB experience who's who's still very young, under a lot of team control that could serve as a centerpiece of a deal to get a guy of, the, of a magnitude like Soto. Yeah, I just, I think, I think they're going to want at least like two top 15, top 20 prospects, which the Yankees don't have. I mean, they only have Volpe. And like, there, there are only so many teams. But I mean, the Dodgers can do... MLB ready talent in Dustin May and Gavin Lux and other guys on top of the fact that they have, I think like a top 10 prospect and a top 20 prospect. I mean, the Yankees have Volpe and we don't even know how high the nationals even are on Volpe. I mean, we obviously love him because we've, we cover him and we're, and we're told all these beautiful things about him. Um, and then from there, it's not, there's nothing great that the Yankees have from like an immediate standpoint i mean i think peraz and dominguez what i'm looking at now this these are the mlb.com rankings which are you know they are what they are are 38 and 39 so i mean i don't think you're blowing any anyone away with an offer um you know especially when it comes to uh, uh, unless you get like a third team involved to like get i don't know like the d-backs of like two top 10 guys um and like so do the orioles but it looks like the orioles are trying to contend what if the orioles come out of this with juan soto and just go and win the world series that'd be funny <laughs> That'd be hilarious. Um, I just want to just want to point out. I like the Fangraphs prospect rankings. So Volpe, just on the topic of Volpe, yes, we love him because we cover the Yankees and and we love all the Yankees top prospects. But Volpe is a guy who's held in high regard league wide by scouts and analytic guys alike. Like he has really kicked into another gear the last couple of years. And on the Fangraphs, uh, in the Fangraphs rankings, he's number ten overall in the sport. Um, the top um, Dodgers prospect, according to Fangraphs, anyway is Diego Cartea, who's um, number 30 in the Fangraph rankings. Number one in the Dodgers system, number 30 in the wow. Fangraph rankings. that's a huge discrepancy. It is. And um, Peraza uh, is number 33, so just a, a few spots behind. Ken Waldachuk's number 35, just a few spots behind Peraza. So, um, you know, I know that there's a lot of, there's there's always a lot of variance in prospect rankings, and you got to look at them holistically and sort of average out from from the sum of all of them. But... I think the Yankees are in just as good a position asset-wise as the Dodgers to make this move. But Robert, your other question is a really good one. Do they actually have the stomach to do it given the tendencies that they've had the last couple of years? And that is definitely a big question mark. They may not. But to me, you know, you if you're trading for a guy like Juan Soto, a guy of that quality at that age, like the, he's a unicorn. That doesn't happen very often. You are never going to lose a trade like that, giving up prospects. I don't care how good they are. You're not going to lose that trade. You have to do it. If there's any chance that you can do it, you have to do it, in my mind. And not only that, apparently, and I do not know why the Nationals are doing this other than they are extremely cheap and they should sell the team already. 
apparently a stipulation of trading for Juan Soto now is take on Patrick Corbin's contract. That's mm. just money. That's right? all that, yeah. That's all that is. And if it if it lets you keep on to a, a couple of prospects and you want to take on that contract, boom. Like the Yankees, I mean, granted the Dodgers are also in the same position, but the Yankees should do that without thinking. And let's not be that podcast. And I trust all four of us in this Skype right now. I trust <laughs> all four of us that we have this opinion. We're not going to be like, oh, let's hold on to Volpe. Oh, let's hold on to Peraza or whatever. You will not ever see a better player in your system than Juan Soto is right now. That's just a fact. Like, even Jason Dominguez has already probably one of the most overhyped prospects of all time, right? No one is better than Juan Soto. If you trade for Juan Soto, you get the best player in that trade for the trade's entire life. End of sentence. Yeah, I mean, it's also it. You also have to look at it through the lens of if you trade for Soto, you're you're almost definitely not bringing Judge back. So it's like if you take so say, let's say you trade Glaber plus all your prospects, and you get Juan Soto. You have Juan Soto and Judge for this year, but then the next season Judge bolts. So you basically what you've done is you've gained Juan Soto, but you've lost Glaber Torres and Aaron Judge. And you've given and, up your entire farm system. I mean, these are the also, questions you have to ask because it's like that's kind of tough to swallow to somebody. Yeah, but that's not the end of the world, especially with the depth the Yankees have at the major league level now. Basically, right now, they're rotating 10 regulars for nine spots. And so if you lose I mean, one, what, what depth? I mean, Joey Gallo's not here next year. Yeah, but yeah, but what I'm saying is that in the infield specifically, Donaldson's going to play third. DJ's going to play second. I guess IKF is going to play short question mark. Wizzo at first. <laughs> but, um, you don't know how Trevino's yeah. going to be. It's like, I don't know. That, that's a scenario that can play out where you're, you're kind of looking at this team next year and you're like, well, we got Juan Soto, but now we don't we have Juan Soto, but- or, Now we don't have Glaber Torres or Aaron Judge anymore and we don't have a, we're like the last ranked farm system in the MLB. Yeah, but you have the budget now to go get Carlos Correa. They might not have Judge anyway. <sighs> I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but at least we have a farm, right? To, to kind of... At least you have Juan Soto. Build up behind that. Too. I'd rather I mean, have Juan Soto it's, than a farm. It's, it's, it's very interesting, but it's like you look at <laughs> you look at prospects that are given up. It's funny. It's fun to like look back and see. I mean, the the craziest thing from the All Star game. Last note of the All Star or Juan Soto, whatever we're doing here. Emmanuel Class A was a, traded for Corey Kluber, and it's like, and he's the best closer in baseball, if not one of the best. So it's like you never actually know, and it's it's hard to give up. At least to me, you know, six prospects plus Glaber Torres. Well, the last time we had this type of conversation is would you give up Andujar and someone else for Garrett Cole? And we all know how that turned out. So I just want to go back to the days where the only trade propositions that were being offered on Twitter were like Clinton and Duhar for whatever top available <laughs> guy there was. I miss those days. Those were the best. That, those were simple times. Very, we were, very all, we were all so innocent. Yeah, so, so innocent. Um, so we now need to get into the the part of the show that I'm very excited for. So as you all know, we do an up and down of the week every single week on this episode. But today it's a little different. We're doing an up and a down from the first half of the season. So this is not ne- does not necessarily need to be a player, but it can be a moment. It can be a call. Literally anything that comes to mind that was both good and bad. 
that's what we're going with here. So I want to start with Les, because that's the first name that I thought of of us four. Les, give us your first up of the first half of the 2022 Yankee season. I know, obviously, every we could talk about Judge, we could talk about Stan, we talk about Glaber. My up is going to be Matt Carpenter. How exciting is that guy? Yeah. You know, he was he was in the Rangers system. He sent an email saying, hey, guys, I can play a little ball. Nobody was interested in him. Now he's just he's an exciting player. He's a feel good story. Like and he makes things happen when he get when he gets to the plate. Sans batting gloves and the best mustache in Saudi baseball. Like it's a great story and I love it. Like obviously we love Judge. Well, three out of four of us may very well like Aaron Judge. Uh, Stanton and Rizzo <laughs> or Glaber, they're all fun stories. But man, Matt Carpenter, he's he's can't miss TV. Yeah, I mean, there's not much to say about Matt Carpenter other than the fact that he's been an absolute godsend for the Yankees. He's pretty much been everything Joey Gallo was supposed to be. So when you think about it, the Joey Gallo struggles aren't even that bad of a thing. It's just Matt Carpenter kind of took his place. He made up for all of the lost time. So I think we should should just go with everyone's up first, and then we go to everyone's down instead of the usual we do our up and down at the same time. Um, So, Matt, your first up of the 2022 season, or of the first half of the 2022 season. Yeah, my up is the collective psyche of this fan base. I don't know about you guys, but last, last season absolutely destroyed me. Like, I don't know. I don't, I'm not sure if any other season of a sports team that I root for has completely just wrecked me as badly as the 2021 Yankees season did start to finish. It was just like one collective punch to the groin over and over and over again, the entire season. And losing to the Sox in the wildcard game was like the cherry on top of the shit pie. And it really just, it, it absolutely took me out to the point where like I needed to take a break from baseball when that season was over. Oh, yeah. I, I actually felt like it, I wasn't sad that, that baseball was done, which is never usually the case for me. So this kind of a season coming off of what happened last year. It is exactly what we all needed. And I don't want to hear anything about, oh, you know, the, you're, you're Yankees fans and you guys have it so good. Because, no, honestly, quite honestly, it has not been good. It, hasn't, it has not been good the last, you know, real, really, really decade plus. It hasn't been, it hasn't been so good. It's been, we've yeah. watched the Red Sox win a couple of world championships and we've watched a promising young core crumble to an extent you know, Gary Sanchez and Greg Bird were considered two of the like saviors at one point in time. They haven't panned out. So a lot has gone wrong for the Yankees over over the last, you know, really since, you know, maybe you could say Jeter retired or since their certainly their last trip to the World Series. We all needed this. That's my up. Yeah, I mean, we spoke Matt when it back back, you know, just a few months ago and it was just you and me doing this pod. All we we spoke about all the bad vibes from last season. And I mean last season was like the season from hell I've kind of like flushed it completely out of my memory and also i kind of agree like the last 10 years of being a yankee fan have not been great and again you can say we're just spoiled yankees fans but having expectations are both a blessing and a curse because you go into every single season having the expectation of winning and that kind of only leaves you with the option of being let down take it from myself who also happens to be a new york jets fan 
I go into every season with no expectations and I'm happy as a clam because whatever happens, I don't really care. And then the only possible thing is upside because if the Jets decide to out of nowhere win football games, I'm happy. But if they lose, it's just another day and I'm not bothered. So I think I, I think I agree. I mean, the Yankees fans will always be pretty a uh, pretty nuts, crazy bunch. But it is nice to, especially given that so many people were incredibly toxic about this team before the season started, to see this team be really good and see Yankees fans like actually taking pride and loving a team again um, definitely is going a long way for the overall the overall good vibes here. Um, toe. Your first up of the first half. My first up is actually similar to Matt's in that my up is the Yankee Stadium crowd. Oh, yeah. These crowds have been good. Really good. They have been really good, especially in the last four to six weeks. I've been very fortunate to go to about a dozen games this season thus far, and I haven't had a bad time at mm-hmm. a game yet. I also haven't been to a normal game yet, which <laughs> is probably part of the reason why it's been a good time. But I, I was texting Coles because we were both at the Thursday game against Cincinnati. And that in Yankee Stadium was crowded Jam. on Thursday night. It was genuinely packed. The most people I've seen there since opening weekend when I went to one of the games against the Red Sox. And mind you, this is... Thursday night in July against the Cincinnati Reds, one of the worst teams in baseball, even though they beat us two out of three, but that happened a long time ago now. But yeah, I never thought that the Yankees were out of it. And I had also gone to the game the day before when Stanton tied the game in the eighth inning and DJ uh, walked off on two out pitches. And yeah, both times just because... There was a sense of belief in the crowd, and this goes yep. back to your point, Matt, about the psyche of the Yankees fans that, man, this crowd is really behind this team. And you can sense that something is really brewing because when you have almost 50,000 people screaming their heads off on a Thursday night in July against the Reds, something special is happening. And so the Yankee same crowd has really been an up. My other up is the Yankees' medical staff. <laughs> Knock on wood, no major injuries thus far. Aroldis Chapman does not count, and hopefully it will continue this way. But that is also an observation a lot of the Yankees doubters have pointed out that there is bound to be an injury or two, and I also don't doubt that, frankly, visits the Yankees. So, But thus far, it's been good health. Thank you, scheduled rest, and Eric Cressy, and whatever program that they reformed, because good job by you guys. Yeah, so I'll I'll go right into my up because it kind of piggybacks off of your up being the Yankee Stadium crowd. So my up is a moment, and it's Aaron Judge's three-run walk-off home run against the Blue Jays. Because I was at that <laughs> game. Me too. And, oh wow! And, and I I made that happen. And and one of and one of just the things that you felt because this was early on in the season, so this it happened I think May tenth. And within that, it was kind of that moment after April going to May where you're kind of starting to realize like, oh, this team has got something going on. They were 13 and two in their last 15 games going leading into that game. And I just what I remember so well about that is that like, sure, a bunch of people had left. I I think it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday night randomly, but there were still a lot of people left. And I mean, you're down five, 
three going into the ninth inning. But it's like the crowd was, you know, alive. They were really doing everything they could to make it as difficult as possible for Jordan Romano. And another thing I really like about Yankees fans, and honestly, this kind of just goes for New York sports fans in general, is that they're really cerebral fans. Like, and Jordan Romano did not have his best stuff that night. And like Yankee Stadium could tell in the way that like every pitch, every flat curveball. I mean, you could tell he didn't have his curveball and every ball that was thrown. It's just it. there was such a different energy at that game. And it was kind of the moment for me where I was like, oh, this is there's something very, very cool happening here. And, and that is carried over for the rest of the season. So that so that moment. And also, I mean, that home run was just so electric because that was peak judge being awesome and like leading all the MVP talk and all of that. So, I mean, yeah, there was nothing, there's nothing more to add other than that just being like such a pure, pure moment in this season and kind of was like a salvo for, Oh, like this team has really got something going on this year. Yeah. And to piggyback off of that point, you saying that New York fans are cerebral, New York fans also are very straight shooters. Like we do not sugarcoat anything. And last year, we went to a bunch of games also, and I would say that the vast majority of games I went to in August and September, it genuinely felt like no one wanted to be there. Yeah. The players, the fans, and everyone else, because of just how bad the vibes were around the team. It felt and, like people were going yeah. to the game because they wanted to have their shot at booing the team. Exactly. Everyone wanted their shot at Giancarlo or Hicks or whoever it was. They, Glaber, they wanted specifically. Glaber. Like, everyone went out there because they were ready to just boo somebody and get angry. It was like a place to go let out anger. It's like you had a tough day, go to the Yankee game tonight. You'll get it all out. And this year it's completely different because the team has turned it around. So, again, the crowd the crowd is always interesting, but this year the level of enthusiasm has really taken it up a notch. And, yeah, let's keep on going. Yeah, so unfortunately, we're going to have to go to our downs now, which are, you know, a little bit of sadder vibes. But we need to we need to find, you know, some some wrinkles here throughout this season. So I guess we can go in like snake order. So I'll start with my first down. I'll start with the first down of the pod for the first half of the season. It's also another moment, another game. And it was when they were the Yankees were in the midst of winning 16 out of 17 to start the month of June. And there was that series in Toronto where they took the first two games and then had a five-run lead in that Sunday game and blew the five-run lead. There was the Lourdes Goriel Grand Slam. And it was one of those losses that, to me, leading up to that game, it felt like that was after, you know, they didn't have Chad Green in the bullpen. Loazigo was hurt. There was no Chapman. That was a moment for me where it felt like something had turned because it's like, oh, okay, after that, all the conversations started being like, all right, the Yankees have to get another bullpen arm. There's definitely something here that, you know, obviously there's magic with winning 15 out of 16 games or 16 out of 17, whatever it was. But you did kind of know in the back of your mind it wasn't sustainable and there were issues, specifically in the bullpen and, and with the pitching. I think Tyone had a bad game that series as well. So you, you kind of had it in the back of your mind that there was something running amok. And since then, the Yankees have been 14 and 11. To me, that was like somewhat of a turning point for this team where it went from like euphoric, this team is awesome, they can't lose. And that game was kind of like a slow down reality check time. You know, there's, and here we are two weeks after that game, 
basically talking about all these needs that they have at the trade deadline. They need a starter. They need another bullpen arm. They need a legitimate outfielder and preferably a center fielder. They don't really have a great shortstop right now, though IKF, you know, has kind of been everything that you could expect out of someone. So to me, that that was the down because it was a very sobering loss. It was like they were about to sweep Toronto. They've kind of been getting away with murder. I think it was going into an off day and it just it just felt like Mm, okay, we've been on this high for two weeks and you just kind of like crashed immediately. And obviously since then they've been playing slightly above 500 baseball. So that is my, my first down. Sigh. My down at the first half is Aaron judge. Oh my God. And this is why <laughs> the combination of his amazing play plus his comments in the media is just setting things up for the second half to be an absolute shit show when it comes to the discourse on Twitter and on the Michael You're K show. That is, and, that is actually not a terrible take. And and other forms of media when it comes to Aaron Judge and the New York Yankees. Aaron Judge is actually a distraction, I think. And this is partly a compliment to the Yankees for really keeping it together well. Um, Less his head is about Personalities are... Uh-oh. All right. Oh, we got him back. Tell how we doing. Yeah. yeah. We lost and you there. Where do you lose me? Aaron Judge being a distraction. Distraction, yeah. All right. Well, here, well, the thing about Judge is that his play and the comments in the media is just going to make it a distraction. And it's been a distraction since the day Brian Cashman sat on the dais and delivered in full details what the final offer was to him. And the discourse has started. There was a certain someone that Coles and I know on Twitter who says, resign Aaron Judge every single time he says something good. But it's just going to become a distraction. And the more he does well, the more tweets are going to have saying that just give the guy whatever he wants, which is obviously a terrible business decision to make. And the longer things go, if Juan Soto doesn't get traded at the deadline, everybody's going to be like, you want Soto or Judge? We're going to have so many arguments in the comments section. And if Judge gets injured, if he doesn't do well, I don't know. And again, like every time he does an interview, this is going to come up. And we yeah. know from the other day that sometimes he doesn't choose his words wisely. And I just pray and hope that he himself doesn't become a distraction. But I can easily see this becoming a problem if things go south. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically like when you put off like a 20 page paper in college and then it's the night before it's due and you're like, shit, I, I have to do this entire thing right now. And it's kind of felt like that way the entire season. Like, I don't know what world judge or anyone involved in the situation is thinking where he's like, I don't want it to be a distraction this season. Like, regardless of what happens, if you didn't re up before the season, it was going to be a distraction, whether or not you wanted it to be. So as we get into September, October, I could see it kind of fizzling out in the playoffs because it's like the playoffs of the playoffs and the goal is to win a World Series there. We kind of saw a similar thing happen with Freddie Freeman too, although everyone kind of just thought Freddie was going to stick around. With Judge, I think the predominant theory is that he's going to leave. So yeah, I mean, it, it has felt like a procrastination situation that's kind of can only bubble up in the worst way possible at this point. It's like when you're holding something back and then eventually it just has to come come to the top later. Any okay. other thoughts on the Aaron Judge situation? That's fair. I just, Robert, now you have to title this podcast, Aaron Judge is a Distraction. That's the title of this episode. <laughs> oh, Fast my up. God. There it is. That, that would be Perfect. that would be something. I know Toe would love it. All right, Matt, your first down. 
Yeah, so I also have, I was thinking, Robert, as you were talking, this just sort of popped into my brain, so I'll just say it, even though it's not my official down, but the 2019 to 2021 bullpen is gone. Yeah. As we knew it. It's it's vanished. I mean, Aroldis Chapman is going to be a not, I, I predict he'll be a non-factor the rest of the day, or the rest of the way. Chad Green is gone. Loisaga, who knows? Zach Britton, maybe very end of the season. I don't think he's going to have enough time to really build up to be anything. Even Wandy, you know, Wandy was was a, a stalwart in the pen last year, and he's, you know, he's been forced to go up the, the into the circle of trust because of all the injuries lately. But um, he has not been as dominant as he was last year. It's been almost a complete changing of the guard with the pen. Um, so while the disappearance of of the pen of old, of of days gone by is a down, I think it also speaks to how great the Yankees' player development apparatus has become that they can just keep on churning out great arms in spite of losing out on, on so much of what bolstered them in the past. So Clay Holmes is now the best reliever in the game. Michael King might be the second best reliever in the game. Um, Clark Schmidt has been great out of the pen. Ron Marinaccio, like all these guys have stepped up um, when the guys that we've come to know and love have gone down. So uh, a sort of up slash down. My actual down is every move the front office made in the offseason. <laughs> Slash going back to last year as well, starting with the Joey Gallo trade, which, which we don't need to spend a ton of time on. Joey Gallo's bad. But I still think, now I want to preface this by saying that unfortunately, Gary Sanchez is having a bad year. He had a, a hot streak uh, yeah. in May when we were talking about him a lot, and he's been really atrocious since then. That being said, Josh Donaldson hasn't been good aside from one hot streak either. Kiner Falefa has been, I would say, a net negative, given that he's hitting for average but nothing else, and he's been pretty bad defensively. So I still think that trade is a mistake overall. Um, I, I like to imagine a world where the Yankees don't make that trade and also sign Trevino. That's like my perfect reality. Yeah. Who knows if they would have signed Trevino if, if Sanchez was still on board. But not a great trade. And... In general, the Yankees are where they are. We talked about this last time, but the Yankees are where they are because of bounce backs from guys who had down years yeah. last year or the year before that. Yeah. Um, and also Aaron Judge being superhuman and also Giancarlo Stanton being awesome. That's why they're so good. Not because of anything the, off the front office did to change the 2021 team and the 2022 team. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly what we said in a podcast of a week or two ago, it's like, it hasn't been the guys that were acquired. It's been the guys that were bad last year improving and the guys that were good last year being even better than they were last year. Uh, on the Donaldson front, I think there's some room for hope. I mean, his expected numbers are slightly better here and there. Um, and I still think he has a lot of room for improvement. And then with IKF, it's like, he's, he's just a carbon copy of the player he was last season. So it's like, I don't know how much you were really um ex expecting out of him but it's kind of like you know he, he is what he is defensively you wish it were a little better but he's been fine i think his defensive struggles have been like kind of overblown but the, from like a long-term point of view i'm more for some reason i'm just more comfortable with like ikf and donaldson on the left side than i would be if it were like glaber and geo so i think like for what it's worth i'm more comfortable long term but like obviously the first half wasn't ideal Okay, Les, round us out with your down for the first half of the well, season. My first, my down for the 
first half of the season is the is the front office. It's the combination of <laughs> Brian Cashman and Hal Steinbrenner and their weird budget conscious approach to roster construction. Like I, I don't understand it. The position now, and I actually do blame Brian Cashman because everybody knew this was Aaron Judge's walk here. So they basically, like you said, you got a 20, t- 20 page paper. Let's let's make this happen. And next thing you know, it doesn't get done the right way. So it's just bizarre that Cashman let it get to this point. He didn't sign Judge earlier, didn't try to lock him up. I don't even know if he made a phone call to his agent prior to arbitration time. Like it just seems like they had no interest in actually signing him before the season started. Like they threw out the, the 213 million. That was their last best offer, but he couldn't negotiate with the guy. I understand the lockout happened and financials were sort of frozen until you figured out what happened, but they're the New York Yankees. They've got money. They could throw it around. They could have gotten this done. And then everything now funnels through Hal Steinbrenner and the bottom line. So it's, we end up with IKF and not Carlos Correa. We end up with Aaron Hicks on a long-term deal for whatever the hell reason that was. Like, it's just, I'm starting to think Brad Cashman's been too long at the job. There's no creativity. It's just kind of see to your pants, ask how what's okay to do. And as opposed to a guy that's got a handful of rings and has been on the job for more than 20 years, I'm personally starting to think that it's time for a Brian Cashman to put up or shut up or get out of Dodge. Last I'm going to push back. Oh, because when we started the season, when we started this podcast, one of the first things we said were that was a good offer for Aaron Judge. That contract yeah. was completely fair, and Aaron Judge had every chance in the world to take it. I don't think, and I know it's easy as a Yankee fan to want to re-sign Aaron Judge. I don't think Aaron Judge is a blank check player. I don't think he will be for the next seven, eight, nine years. And I'm actually, and I think the tea leaves that you can read, how often does Cashman come out and tell you the number that he offered to a player? So I think the Yankees viewed this as a good offer. I think it was a good offer for Judge. I mean, I remember being really surprised that he didn't take it. And to me, it was kind of a signal that he was gone. Um, so I'll, I'll slightly push back because I think I think the Yankees made a completely fair offer to Aaron Judge. And I think Aaron Judge... Like, is he, this is, and we spoke about this last week, is like, this is the best he's ever going to be, probably. So you'd be paying for past performance for a large chunk of a huge contract that you'd be giving him. If another team wants to give him a blank check, I can sleep peacefully at night knowing we got Aaron Judge's best seasons as a baseball player. And if he wants to go elsewhere and get paid, so be it. So I actually give some credit to the front office for saying, you know, do we really want to pay this humongous? I think Coles' internet just completely dropped. Oh, no. Did I just completely drop out? Yes. You froze. Oh, Aaron man. Judge got you, too. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Every time we talk about Judge, we drop out. What the heck is going on here? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, I don't think he's – I don't think – I'm okay with the Yankees not shelling everything out they need. They needed to for him. That is my final thought on the situation. Yeah. I, I get behind that. It just seems like they just – they waited to the last possible minute. That's, that's, that's my problem. Well, like you said, it was a confluence of a bunch of factors. The lockout, I think, was chief among them. Granted, you can go through back channels, through agents and the like. Sure. But still, I think that at the end of the day, because you were also going to buy out his last year of arbitration, 
Um, you didn't ne- you didn't necessarily need to give him the moon and the stars in April. And now, I mean, it's not worth either side really trying to come to an agreement in the middle of the season because Judge is having a career year. It could get better, and the Yankees could, frankly, be having a massive overpay. What happens if he gets injured on Friday? Then what? You know what I mean? So it was fair, and the other thing is that you cannot predict what a 6-7 outfielder is going to do in terms of health-wise, in terms of how he will age from a production standpoint because we've never seen this type of player before. So, yeah, Aaron Judge is great. Everyone loves him, but there is still a pretty decent amount of uncertainty that comes with his future. And because of that, look, I mean, if if, if you want to call him a superstar and you want to say a superstar should just get the highest paid or the highest value contract because that's the way the NFL does it with their quarterbacks, yeah, fine, whatever. But you know what? I think... All in all, the Yankees and Judge think that they're in a great spot right now. So, as fans, I think we are too. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I I I agree generally with that. It's like I love Aaron Judge; he's been amazing. But I think we I think he's the best he's been, and I don't think he's going to get better than this. So you're, and I I don't love paying for past performance, especially you know I mean he's a huge guy. He's, who knows how he'll hold up, but. We've spoken about that a lot. So I think we need to get into the segment part of the show where we do our predictions for the next five games. We start off with a bang. Yeah. I oh, mean, yeah, we do. Coming out tomorrow to have a doubleheader with the Astros in Houston. And we don't even know who's pitching yet. I think so Nestor's that, pitching. No, uh, I, maybe uh, not actually. Yeah, no, no Monty chance, or, uh, probably going to be Tyone. Uh, and, and Monty, I would guess. Um, and it's not going to be Garrett. It's not going to be Nestor. So, yeah, and it can't be Seve. So probably Tyone Monty. Um, so it's a doubleheader against the Astros and then three against the Orioles and then an off day on Monday. So, Toe, I'll let you go first and give your prediction for the next five games. Three and two. Ho-hum. Ho-hum. I think it's simple math. Likely to split a doubleheader with the Astros because doubleheaders are normally split. And all signs point to taking two out of three from the Orioles because the Yankees are simply a better baseball team. Although I am quite interested to see how the Orioles play, given what they have been doing since the beginning of July. Yeah, I mean, the Orioles have been a very fun story, and it'll it'll be interesting to see how they show up. I mean, Camden Yards is going to be buzzing for that series, too. Les, what's your prediction? I'm torn. I'm torn. The Astros, they play them tough. Uh, I'm going to go four and one. I think they drop one of the games against Houston, take care of business against Baltimore. The sweep of the resurgent Orioles. Yeah, they're they're not in the same league. Well, I think if the Yankees will have Nestor and Cole pitching in that series, those are obviously games you're supposed to win. Um, who is taking Sevy's spot in the rotation? Is it going to be J.P. Sears? Who's, who's going to be the guy that pitches for Sevy? Sears, right? It's got to be Sears. Yeah, I don't think Schmidt's stretched out enough. Yeah. But anyway, Matt, your prediction for the next five games. 
I've got a two and three. I think the the Yankees are going to split this doubleheader tomorrow in Houston. And the Orioles are just an awesome story this year. And I think coming out of the All-Star break and going to Camden Yards, where the place is sure to be quite uh, quite active and quite loud, is a recipe for the Yankees to drop a surprising series. Orioles yeah. are real feisty right now. And they're a lot of fun. And they're, you know, they're they're right up with the Red Sox and the Blue Jays and the Rays in the thick of the race for those wild card spots. So I think it's going to be a tough weekend for the Yankees. So I'll give a two and three. I think I'm with Toe on the three and two ho-hum train. I think they'll split with the Astros and then win two out of three against the Orioles and the Yankees will just go on their merry way. I, I think the Yankees, I don't think they're going to be like world beaters in the second half, but I think they're going to ho-hum their way to 100 wins, 99 wins, and everything will be okay because the division is basically wrapped up. Yeah, the division any, is finished. Any any other, I mean, excited, I'm excited to see if they use that as an opportunity to like get young guys some playing time in September, I guess we'll see. But it's like the rosters don't really expand that much. So there's not really much you can do. Um, but any other thoughts, anything we left out of our very dynamic conversation today? I'm sure next week we'll be talking about trade deadline stuff, so we should save it for them. But that's deadline. something to keep an eye on. For sure. Yeah, hopefully something gets done um, pretty soon because it feels like right now all we're doing is talking about potential potential scenarios. Um, but if nothing else, we battled through some tough technical difficulties today, although I do think it's quite convenient that they both happened when we were kind of like giving Judge some crap. Doesn't Things happen about- when we give Judge crap. I guess it's true, especially like judge hitting homers. That seems to happen every time that you're choosing to give him crap. Hey, 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 hey. I am happy to do it all the time if that's what the result is. Yeah. You could be the only only person that I know that like actively will shit talk judge. So I almost give you credit for the bit. Meet me at La Bodega anytime before a Yankees game and I will talk all this shit. All of it. Oh, great. Um, well, if you enjoyed the podcast, even if you didn't, make sure you're following. Turn that notification button on so you don't miss another episode. You can give all of us collectively a follow on Twitter at Pinstripe Purse. That's at Pinstripe, P-E-R-S. Uh, Kevin Whistler put out a very good article this week on pinstripeperspective.com kind of breaking down a Juan Soto trade, what it would look like, what it, what it would mean going forward, the money, everything from A to Z there. Highly recommend reading that. We have a lot more trade deadline stuff coming out. We've been putting out daily uh, targets in the last couple of days, most notably Daniel Bard, Lou Trevino, and Ramon Lariano on the website as well. And Andre DiGregorio also has a lot of great trade deadline content coming up. But without further ado, thank you all for listening, and go Yanks.